Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8 o'clock, or rather 8.30 on Thursday, April 14th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, what new research tells us about the 2022 hurricane season. And we learn about a museum in Hattiesburg dedicated to recognizing African-American military service. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB. MPB. Ooh, I can't talk today. MPB Think Radio. Governor Tate Reeves yesterday signed a bill to establish an Office of Broadband Expansion and Accessibility in Mississippi. Reeves says affordable broadband access in rural areas will serve as an economic spark for rural communities. We need to ensure that every Mississippian has access to the full breadth of benefits technology has to offer. It is my strong belief that one zip code should not determine their access to these technologies. That's why we're committed to overcoming geographical barriers and leveling the playing field by providing technological opportunity for Mississippians across every corner of our state. The governor has tapped Sally Doty, who's currently executive director of the state public utility staff, to run the new office. Doty speaks with MPB's Kobe Vance. We have been involved in broadband somewhat by a requirement of the legislature. When I stepped into the door as the executive director, uh, the staff was also given the responsibility for that CARES Act broadband uh, grant. And really it was something the staff had not been involved in before, but we spent, in addition to our other duties, we were able to handle that uh, very well, uh, mainly because a lot of telecom has deregulated. So we, we don't have as much responsibility in that area. So we had some people who were ready and, and willing to jump on this broadband area. So through that uh, training and, and learning about uh, broadband in that area really is, is how I've gotten to this place. Um, once we got that grant completed, uh, different internet service providers that we had worked with uh, began calling us and saying, hey, there's this other grant out there. There's this funding opportunity. Uh, we need a governmental partner. And I said, no, we, it's not in our statutory authority. Nope, nope, nope. And they kept calling us saying, you know, we, our, our rural areas 
that really need this broadband infrastructure and need this grant, um, you know, they're hesitant. Their their board of supervisors or their small town mayors hesitant to enter into this. Will you be our partner? And I again said no. And uh, but finally, when it looked like we weren't going to be able to file anything. I talked to the governor's office and said, if you will tell me to do it, I will do it. So uh, we did and applied for that uh, grant. It's a, uh, they call it a BIP grant, Broadband Infrastructure Program. Um, we thought we would get 5 or $10 million. It was only a $286 million pot nationwide. And we got 32 million. We got our entire ask, and uh, we were just so excited about that. We just found out about that in February, and are in the process right now of getting those grant funds and those projects started. You spoke to this a little bit during the press conference, but what kind of communities do you expect might be getting this funding to be able to help, you know, address rural broadband? Small communities. Uh, Issaquina County is the recipient of a project in the BIP grant that we're going to administer, and I expect small counties. Uh, in I, I live in Brookhaven, Lawrence County right next door. I expect them to benefit from it. Uh, the Delta, Cahoma County, all through the Delta, um, we're going to be expanding broadband to all unserved areas of the state. Now, it won't be tomorrow, and it won't even be in six months. But within the next within the next four years, my goal would be for everybody in Mississippi to have connectivity. You know, what is that? What do you think that could mean for Mississippians? Oh, I just think it means so much. I mean, you know, telehealth. I, I cared for my elderly parents for a long time, and the ability to not have to load my mother in a wheelchair in a handicapped van, you know, but to have a telehealth appointment. It is a game changer as a working mom uh, to not have to take off work. You know, maybe you could do some sort of telehealth appointment. And then in education, I mean, our, our kids, you know, they can't do their homework. They can't access uh, different resources. We visited one school that got one of the CARES Act grants. It was a large private school out uh, at the intersection of four counties in rural Mississippi. And they had terrible Internet. They taught Spanish through some modules, some online modules, and the teacher said we can barely get through one module during a class period. Once they got broadband, they could do four modules during a class period of Spanish. So it's just, I think, transformational for education, health care, and then just economics. I mean, look at the opportunities. We, I have so many of these stories because all of the grant recipients for the uh, CARES Act grant, we went and visited and, and tried to... You know, we wanted to make sure our dollars were spent in the right place. So we, we visited all around the state. But we did. We ran into a, um, a couple that had moved from um, a larger Chicago, some area, back to the family farm because they were able to remote work um, online. And so it's just, I think it's so many opportunities for this state, and I'm just so excited to be a part of it. Sally Doty is set to lead the state's new Office of Broadband Expansion and Accessibility. Coming up, what new research tells us about the 2022 hurricane season. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Yesterday's rain and wind is likely only a preview of the severe weather the Gulf South is set to face this hurricane season. That's according to a new outlook from researchers at Colorado State University. They've published the Atlantic Storm Predictions annually for nearly four decades. Michael Bell is a professor of atmospheric science at Colorado State. He speaks with MPB's Michael Guidry. So we use a variety of different forecast techniques, um, including uh, statistical models. We look at how all the different years um, in past uh, that have had similar types of atmospheric conditions and oceanic conditions, um, what the hurricane activity looked like in those. Um, We also look at analog years, so we look at um, specific years and see uh, which years tend to match up the best. And then more recently, we've added some what we call uh, statistical dynamical hybrid techniques where we use climate models to forecast what the conditions are going to be during the uh, peak part of the hurricane season and then uh, uh, process those to to get uh, specific numbers for hurricane activity. So this combination of methods is what we use to produce our final forecast. When people tend to think of hurricanes, uh, they think of the Atlantic coast, certainly the Gulf of Mexico, but not Colorado. How did Colorado State University uh, get into the practice of developing this forecast for 36 years? Yes, yeah, so our, our department was founded by uh, Professor Herb Reel, um, who uh, wanted to have a good place here in Colorado. He came from the University of Chicago. Um, uh, and uh, actually near the Na- National Center for Atmospheric Research. So the front range of Colorado is a hotbed for atmospheric science and, and research. Um, and then Bill Gray, who uh, initiated those forecasts 39 years ago, um, was Herb Real's student. So this is a long tradition here at CSU. And uh, Bill Gray always used to say that hurricanes can't get you at 5,000 feet. So um, it's a good place to to forecast from. All right. This this forecast for the 2022 season, the, the, the short headline is that it's forecast to be an above-average season. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Yeah, so we forecasted um, 19 named storms, so that's tropical storms or above, um, uh, nine hurricanes and four major hurricanes. So that is above uh, the, the average of, uh, of, of um, f- 14 named storms, seven hurricanes, and three major hurricanes. So um, we're not. Uh, um, it's one of the few times we actually forecast this uh, three years in a row. Um, but our conditions have been in La Nina condition, uh, uh, oceanic conditions uh, for the past few years, and we expect that that La Nina to um, perhaps the neutral El Nino conditions will continue into this uh, season. Uh, that's one of the main reasons that we're forecasting the above-average activity. Um, but uh, but we are expecting uh, an, an above-average, uh, very active season. You mentioned uh, La Nina and El Nino uh, conditions. What can, can you explain those a little bit and how they impact um, hurricane development? Yes, yeah, so the La Nina and El Nino refer uh, specifically to the ocean temperatures and the, uh, the depth of the ocean heat off the coast of South America in the eastern Pacific. And that uh, ocean temperature actually has a very large influence on the weather and climate around the globe. Um, one of the main reasons, ways that it affects uh, hurricane activity in the Atlantic is by inducing what we call vertical wind shear. So that means that the change of winds with height in the atmosphere, and um, if, if you have stronger winds in the upper part of the atmosphere uh, than in the lower part, that can tend to rip hurricanes apart. So in the La Nina years, um, we tend to see 
less vertical wind shear in the Atlantic and actually more vertical wind shear in the in the Pacific. Uh, and then in El Nino years, that's reversed. So El Nino years tend to see reduced activity in the Atlantic and more activity in the Pacific. So And that's primarily through that uh, vertical wind shear uh, patterns that, that change globally as a result. So that's one of our biggest predictors. When we started talking about the, the forecast, you mentioned names, storms, hurricanes, major hurricanes, uh, but those aren't the, the only kind of things that you lay out uh, in your forecast. Um, what is the significance of, of tracking and then kind of forecasting or predicting name, storm days or, and like hurricane days? Yes, so that's, those days um, that are essentially the number of days that that particular phenomena, whether it's name, storm, hurricane, or major hurricanes, um, will be present in the Atlantic Basin. So um, so in addition to just the number, we have you know, sometimes some short-lived storms. We have long-lived storms. So we like to uh, – our models have some skill at predicting um, how, how many days we expect that those will occur. Um, another predictor that we uh, look at um, is what a metric called accumulated cyclone energy, which is essentially uh, the integrated – energy of all the hurricanes in, in the basin. So we take the, their intensity and and their duration and add them up. And, and so that's a way to characterize the entire season with one single number. And that number this year is above, we, we are forecasting that to be above average as well. Of a, an ace, we call that the ACE, accumulated cyclone energy. Um, we're forecasting 160 ACE units this year compared to a normal of 123. So. And then uh, you've said that this is the third year in a row, I believe, that you're predicting above average activity. Um, and, of course, you know, globally there is growing conversation uh, about the effects of climate change on severe weather events. What, in, in your research in developing this forecast and, and all the work you do, uh, what conclusions uh, is your department able to make about the impact of climate change on hurricane season? Yeah, so climate change is definitely uh, making a, a major impact on uh, the ocean temperatures around the world. Um, so one of the primary impact ways that climate change is impacting the hurricane season is through uh, increasing ocean temperatures. So um, in addition to the La Nino and El Nino that I mentioned before, um, we are seeing uh, warmer ocean temperatures in the Atlantic this year uh, for at this time of year than normal, um, which is uh, uh, associated with climate change, um, and that's also part of the reason our forecast is, is larger than normal. We actually did uh, publish a paper recently, though, looking at global trends in hurricane activity. And we found that the global number of hurricanes has actually gone down somewhat, um, in part to the fact that we've been seeing more La Nina years in, recent, in the past 30 years than, than El Nino. The Western Pacific Basin um, is, is the largest and warmest basin uh, around the globe, um, and when the La Nina conditions are in place, um, that tends to reduce activity there. So we've actually seen a slight decrease in the overall number of storms. Um, one area though where we have seen a significant increase is in the uh, rapidly intensifying storms, and, and in particular the storms that are intensifying by more than 50 miles an hour uh, in their intensity over a 24-hour period. Um, we think that that uh, is is potentially related to the effects of climate change and the warming ocean temperatures because we know that um, larger uh, 
uh, warmer oceans uh, will produce uh, more rapidly intensifying storms. So that's a, a particularly a big concern um, for storms, for example, like last year's uh, Hurricane Ida um, that uh, intensified very rapidly on its way across the Gulf, um, and that doesn't give uh, coastal communities as much time to prepare um, as, as storms that, that may intensify more slowly. So I, I think that that's one of the areas that we're particularly um, interested in uh, doing more research and, and, and trying to better understand rapid intensification. So. I imagine it's, it's very difficult with this type of forecasting to, to get an understanding or an idea or a guess of how many of these hurricanes that, you've, that you forecast are going to make significant land impact. I'm guessing there's no really a way to do that. Yeah, we, we do actually issue a, um, a probabilistic forecast for hurricane landfall for different areas. Um, of course, this far out, we can't uh, predict specifically where or when a storm is going to form. But what we do is um, we take a look at all the hurricanes that have made landfall in uh, different areas um, historically. So that gives us some uh, probability of, of where the hurricanes might go. And then we can scale that by the amount of activity that we think will occur um, so, for example, in the, the Gulf Coast, actually from Florida Panhandle all the way to Brownsville, Texas, the average uh, for a major hurricane to make landfall in that area is about 30 percent. Um, but the, uh, with, with our increased odds of, of a higher active season, uh, we, we put those odds at 46 percent, so closer to about uh, you know, one in two as opposed to one in three for a Gulf Coast landfall this year. Um, but we can't say this far in advance exactly where that might occur. Um, but we can say that the odds of, of, of the Gulf Coast or uh, East Coast landfall have, have in, increased um, from our forecast. Michael Bell is a professor of atmospheric science at Colorado State University. Still ahead, we learn about a museum in Hattiesburg dedicated to recognizing African-American war veterans. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The State Historical Society this year granted Mississippian Latoya Norman an award of merit for recognizing and celebrating the sacrifice of African Americans in the military. Norman is the director of the African American Military History Museum in Hattiesburg, which she tells us houses the stories of generations of black service members within a historically significant space. The building is housed in a historic World War II USO that opened March 22nd, 1942. So it just turned 80 years old. Um, and that building served as a home away from home for African-American servicemen who were stationed at Camp Shelby. Um, the military was segregated, and, of course, um, a lot of USOs were, and so that's why this was built specifically for African-American servicemen. Um, it was built in a very vibrant African-American business district so that soldiers could find whatever they needed that they couldn't find at our USO. They could find on Mobile Street 
And we opened as a museum in 2009 as the African-American Military History Museum. And that was because of some veterans who knew the significance of the building and opening as the USO in the 1940s. And so they were very adamant that the building should never be torn down. And eventually there was a partnership formed between that group who now serves as an advisory board for the committee and the Hattiesburg Convention Commission, the organization that I work for. And what is USO? What does that stand for? That stands for United Service Organization. So um, in the 40s, President um, Franklin D. Roosevelt wanted um, USO clubs to be built all over the world. Um, He wanted soldiers to have a place where they could go and, you know, for, for relaxation and recreation. And that's why USOs were built so that Though they were training for World War II, it was important for them to have somewhere that they could go and just, you know, not think about the the war that they were training for. What kind of exhibits will you see at the museum? So at the museum, we chronicle African Americans in the military, starting with the American Revolution. We do have interactive exhibits. We um have a in that World War II area there's a truck um, and the exhibit is about Red Ball, the Red Ball Express which is a supply route um, and 75% of those drivers were African American and there's an interactive quiz that you can activate by turning the wheel um, about 10 questions there is an exhibit on engine Jesse Leroy, Leroy Brown the first African American Um, pilot in the Navy, and he's from Hattiesburg, and so we're just so proud to have that exhibit and tell his story. But um, just lots of exhibits that tell the story of the African-American soldier and their contributions um, in America's conflicts. From the visitors that come in and the people that you talk to, are they surprised to hear that African-Americans participated as far back as Revolutionary War? Some are. It's really hard to find information uh, because the service of, you know, black servicemen was not um, as well documented. And so we take pride on telling stories in our museum that you wouldn't find at any other museum. Um, And so there is a, a bit of surprise. Me having worked there since we opened in 2009, I'm always surprised when visitors come in and they share stories about a particular veteran who made a significant contribution. There's just a lot of rich history, and we haven't told every story, and so we look forward to learning from our visitors as well. Is there anything that has really been an eye-opener for you in talking to people and, and learning the history of African-Americans in the military? You know, I always say that this is American history. Um, It's always surprising to learn some of these very unique stories, but ultimately through speaking with veterans, you know, once you're on the battlefield, you're just soldiers um, completing a mission, um, truly brothers in arms. And so, Though we focus on the service of African-Americans in the military, what we show is the progression, um, the progression of our military and just our nation. 
Are there any traveling exhibits or other um, expansion ideas that you want to do moving forward? Yes, um, we do have some traveling exhibitions. Um, we have a traveling exhibition that's specifically on the USO, the the building which was called the Sixth Street USO Club. And so we have a traveling exhibit that um, teachers or organizations can rent if, if they want to share that story with their organization. And we're actually excited because we have some military vehicles that have been donated to the museum. And we are looking at expanding, adding um, an annex, a new pavilion that will be right across the street from the museum. And it will house um, 13 very unique um, vehicles that range from World War II era to Desert Storm. Latoya Norman is the director of Mississippi's African-American Military History Museum. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's Autocorrect. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio. Have a good day.